Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 218th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Maura Griffin. Maura is the founder of Blue Spark Financial, an independent RA with offices in New York and Massachusetts that oversees more than $150 million of assets for nearly 90 families, most of whom are either divorced or widowed women making financial decisions on their own for the first time. What's unique about Maura, though, is how she built her practice from scratch, not by marketing or financial planning services, but instead by developing a focused expertise in college aid planning and charging high school parents a flat fee of $1,000 to help them with their financial aid planning needs. And in the process, getting paid for her college planning expertise as a pathway to establishing relationships that then could turn into comprehensive planning relationships in the future. In this episode, we talk in depth about how the demand for her college aid planning services helped Mara grow to $15 million in AUM by just the first year alone, the way she systematized her financial aid planning presentation and deliverables to efficiently serve more than 100 clients in her first year alone, and how those initial financial planning aid engagements led to the realization that what she found most gratifying from a professional perspective was helping women who faced the same challenges she did as a single woman who was responsible for making all the financial decisions for her family, leading Maura to pivot into working with recently widowed and divorced women as her niche for the past several years. We also talk about the circumstances that set the stage for Maura's career-changing transition from journalism and real estate investing into financial planning. Why having a financial reserve when she launched her firm was so crucial to give her not only peace of mind and confidence, but the flexibility to build her business with intention from the start without feeling an inordinate amount of pressure to take on any and every prospect she came across. The steps Maura took to manage her time and capacity by implementing account minimums and a wait list as her practice grew, and how she had to learn to say no at times when the rapid growth of her practice left her feeling overworked and overwhelmed. And be certain to listen to the end where Maura shares the challenge of feeling frustrated by not being able to help everybody who was seeking out her help, how that served as a pathway to her understanding what she ultimately wanted as and most enjoyed about being a business owner and gave her clarity around the concept of enough, and why Maura has now consciously made the decision to structure her firm as a so-called lifestyle practice. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Maura Griffin. Welcome, Maura Griffin, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Thank you so much for inviting me on this. It's it's a privilege and an honor. I I appreciate you joining me. I, you know, I know we we had talked a couple of years ago. A conversation I still very much remember. That you had had this, you know, it, like incredible growth spurt early in the firm. And you know all the good stuff that comes from that, right? Like the, the business is going well, the, you know, the the economics are going well. Like I'm, I'm going to make it. You were way past the "I'm going to make it" question, but there is such thing as like growing too much and too fast, where you know you end up working 60, 70, 80 plus hour weeks, and you get buried in your practice, and it does not always feel good, and it's a hard, uh, even roller coaster sometimes to get off of. And and you know we ended out in kind of this discussion of you know 
either what do you do to deal with all the growth, right? And that leads to all sorts of questions about hiring or outsourcing and camps and partners and, and all the different ways that we can handle growth. But it also just fuels a discussion of like, why am I still growing in the first place? And like, is there, is there some point where it's just going well enough that it's enough? And then maybe we don't even need to grow anymore. And so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. I almost view it as a little bit of a a recap and what's happened since, you know, we didn't have you on for that original discussion a few years ago. So I'm, I'm trying to catch our, our listeners up with a little bit of the backstory and the preview, but I was excited to talk to you and just understand like, you know, you, you had this great growth, you hit that challenging moment of, of what comes next. I know you've now been digesting that for, for a few years. And so I'm, I'm excited and curious just to hear like, you know, what's going on with the practice? What does it look like today? And, and how do you deal with these challenges of, of, you know, what's, what's growth and what's enough? Yes. I think this is one of the things that I've been wrestling with since we talked in that must've been about four years ago, three or four years ago. I think it was before you started the, these podcasts, which I have to I, I I have to thank you for being you, Michael, because I think I, I think my firm wouldn't be my firm and would not have the success I've had if it if it weren't for what you have brought to the the industry to to the discussion. You're bringing people you're bringing people together, creating a collective wisdom because we learn from each other. And I religiously listen to your podcasts. And have learned so much from, from each person, whether they're completely different from what I do, but there, there is a nugget I take away from, from everyone. My firm started in New York City in April of 2012. That's when I was given state permission. I'm now SEC registered. So I started with zero assets. I had been in the industry but not an advisor. I went to business school late in my career for different reasons, if we could get into it later. But deciding to start this, to start in this field was partly due to, I feel like I was good at it. I was good at managing my own financial life as a single mom in New York City to do the research to figure out what are the best ways. I had gotten into some real estate investment and renovations, which gave me capital then to go to business school and then start my start my own firm without having to worry too much about, um, you know, I had a reserve because I happened to, I, I was lucky. I got into real estate in, in Brooklyn at a time when the market was really going up. So it was partly partly guts, partly luck that I had this to be able to... So when I started the business, I had a little bit of reserve. So it gave me some confidence to be to not have to take every client who came and to be able to be a little bit picky and also have the confidence to be able to say almost right from the beginning, that these are the people who I want to serve. And those people are people like myself, people who women mostly, and I and I tiptoed into it at the beginning saying, you know, I put on the, I created a website that I believe appealed to 
someone like me. And those, I think, are the people who I could serve best. Women who've been through a divorce or who've been widowed, women who are making money decisions on their own, possibly for the first time. And it, it it resonated. It it worked. And, you know, soon when we talked, there was, you know, the, the, the marketing, the, the, what I put out there for the firm was resonating with people. And it, it was almost too, it was too much business for me to handle. And what I was doing is taking everyone because they all spoke to me in some ways. If they, if they reached out to me, then there was something that resonated and I wanted to help them. And that, that was tough because I was running myself ragged and I was, I was, you know, literally working around the clock. I had no social life. My son was in high school by that time. And of course he didn't really want to hang around with me very much anymore. So, you know, it was a time when I completely dove in and I appreciated your help and your, your generosity in, in taking my call because I knew you were the person to talk to. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by just this, like this early stage of the journey. And there were, there were a couple of things in there that, that really jump out at me. One is because of some of what you've done in personal financial success in real estate, you had a bit of a reserve, which I think as you said, like gave you the confidence to not have to take every single client as they as they come, which I, I think is a like it's a really powerful thing that we don't talk about enough in the in the industry. I mean, just the reality when you actually look out there at 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 financial advisors, like it is brutal getting started, you know, as, as I've taken to saying these days, like the first few years are really sucky for everyone. And, and much of that is just literally financial. You know, if you, if you listen to some of the folks that we've had on, on the podcast from the start, even folks that have built some just like monstrously financially successful firms, they all still have stories of just horrible financial constraints and challenges in the early years. You know, Ron Carson talks about how they were eating hamburger helper living off of his spouse's nurse's salary after five years in the business. You know, Deb Weatherby now has a three plus billion dollar RIA in San Francisco, but she ran up tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt in when she started, and I think it was late 1980s. Like that's a that's a really big amount of credit card debt in the, in the 1980s. Some people at least come to the business and and do have the the good opportunity or good fortune or good circumstances or or prior background or sometimes even just spousal relationships that give a little bit more of a reserve or a financial cushion to be able to build the business with a little bit more intention from the start. Because otherwise we do put ourselves in a position of, well, you know, I have so little, you know, I have so little in the tank and I need revenue going to pay my bills, to pay my family bills, to pay my mortgage, whatever it is that we often put ourselves in a position of basically kind of mild state financial desperation out of the gate and then and then feel the pressure that we have to take every single client no matter what and and then often come to have challenges with that later because we end up with overly broad practices where we've done everything for everyone and it undermines efficiency and some other challenges and just it 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 struck me i i realize 
not everybody who comes in or not everyone who's listening is going to have the opportunity to to have that level of of reserve or backstop when they when they come in and get started but on the one hand to me both like what you're saying highlights that you know if you don't have the reserve maybe you should wait a little bit longer before you actually get started to build that up so that you can build your business with a little bit more intention and and if you do have you know, the, the good fortune or opportunity to have that kind of reserve, use it, like use it to your advantage, which doesn't necessarily mean like blow it and spend it down, but use it to be able to build the business with more focus and intention from day one, instead of having that be something you, you get to later. Like that's one of the, the, the gifts and the opportunities that you get if you come in with a little bit more runway for yourself. Right. And what I would recommend is if you don't have it, pretend that you do. And I didn't have, and I don't want to make it seem like I had an enormous amount and I lived enormously frugally. And, but I had, I did have a cushion of about a hundred thousand dollars that I could, you know, I could live on that for two and a half or three years. I, I shopped in thrift stores. There's great thrift stores in New York city. Nobody knew it. I was tremendously frugal during that time because I didn't have a backstop of, you know, a husband with health insurance or that was it. But what it did give me, so it's not, you know, it's not like I went on living as if I had, you know, had my salary job in the past, um, the same financial fears of whether this was going to work out. But one thing it did do is that, you know, the whole idea of build it and they will come. That was my mantra at the time, that if I invest the time and invest instead of, you know, overindulging myself, that that money was going to go toward having an office that people are going to be comfortable in, that's going to give them confidence in in coming to me and becoming a client. And, you know, in the first days I had a Regis office and I, you know, at the very beginning, I did it one day a week and that's what I thought I could afford. So one of the things I always did was look at everything I was doing through the eyes of a potential client. And I looked at those, I looked at those offices and they were, you know, bare and soulless. So what I would do is I would, you know, book the appointments on this one day and I would take a wheelie bag and I would have books and newspapers and pictures of my son and family. And I would put the whole thing in it. I made it my office for the day. Then I'd pack it all back up. And then you would like, you were personally design and deck out like your Regis office space for the day. So it felt like your homey office for the day. And at the end of the day, last clients wrapped up like, okay, I'm going to pack all my stuff into my wheelie bag and off we, and off we go again. Yes. Yes, because that's what I would have wanted to have seen were I to go visit. So, and then as I, you know, as I brought on clients, then I did get, you know, I had full-time office space and then more office space for my assistant. And, you know, I've got another advisor with the firm. So he met clients, you know, and still does. We still have an office in New York City, even though we now have two locations. And and out of curiosity, just because I, as you said, like you were very attuned to to client perceptions. 
I have heard some advisors be like very sort of hesitant or skeptical around using the those you know, various shared office co-working space arrangements like Regis out of concern of like, you know, is there a client perception issue when like you don't have your own office, you're in a shared Regis office space? Like does that say something about the the size of the firm or the mass of the firm or the stability of the firm or, or, or something else because you quote unquote, you don't have your own office. What, was that a concern for you? Did that crop up for you? Was that an issue, but you worked through it anyways? Was it not an issue? And we just do this to ourselves in our own head. <laughs> That's, you know, we do a lot of things to, in our own head to ourselves. And I did, you know, I had, I also looked at office space where I would, you know, rent, you know, the very beginning before I did this, that I would rent, you know, a, a suite and then I would do subtenants. And I love that idea too. But what I kept telling myself is I read a book by um, Danny Meyer, the Union Square guy who's, you know, brilliant. And his, you know, the thing I took away from that is, you know, go to your your center of expertise, that whole idea of moving the salt shaker back to the middle of the table. And so I knew to do this, I had to be focused. And and so talk to us about just the, the growth of the firm through this phase and just what was what was going on as it grew. Uh, like just like how many clients were coming on board, how how quick was the growth as it was coming in? Like just help us understand the context of this growth path. So it it more than doubled every year. What I did at the beginning was it, I, I needed an expertise to hang my hat on. And one thing that I'd done a lot of research on, because my son at the time was a sophomore in high school, is financial aid. And here I was starting a business and you know, this financial aid was a possibility for me. So I really studied what it, you know, the FAFSA and what it, what it takes to do that and what colleges are looking for and how to maximize aid. And so I talked to his, his high school. I gave talks at a couple of, a couple of high schools. And at the time I charged for doing those doing those sort of mini plans. You know, I was also doing financial planning separately, which I don't do anymore, but as a way of getting getting out there. So sometimes people would come for the college plan. They would then engage for a full deep dive financial plan, which is it's it's often college planning that that drives a family to do to do the big long-term plan. So that there were times when I was, you had like 300 different families that first year. And it was literally, you know, like one after another and it was exhausting. So talk to me a little bit more about this. Just like, that's a, a huge number of, of, of clients and people coming, coming in, which, which just tells me like you, you must've really hit a nerve with the, with the topic and, and, and how you were getting it out there. So, so, so what exactly were you doing? Like you, you made a, a, a present, like a, a, a presentation on financial aid and qualifying for aid and how it works. And then you just literally went to the high school and said, Hey, I've got some expertise on this. Can I, 
like, can I do a workshop for the parents on college financial aid? Yes. And like, and just how do you get the word out? Like, would the school literally market for you? Like, you know, Maura Griffin, one of our parents is also doing a, a workshop on qualifying for financial aid. If you want to do this, you know, come to back to school night and she'll be in room 207 from 8 to 9 p.m. Like that kind of setup. Yes. I was on the PTA. I was treasurer of the PTA for, you know, three, three or four years of, of my son's high school. It's a public high school in New York City, the lab school for collaborative education. And so it started with that. And then, you know, I would do some other talks and then you get on the, you know, the parent message boards, the list serves as they called them then. And, you know, I still get some calls now, eight or nine years later. <laughs> They're like, I saw your <laughs> I message you, from yeah. 2013. Do you just still do this because my kids are sophomores and I'm getting anxious about this? Right. And I have that expertise. And so I, you know, obviously I still keep up with it and it's changed, changed a lot, but I do that for clients. And, you know, occasionally I will do what I've been doing, you know, every year I usually give a a pro bono lecture about that or, or other topics, either in the Berkshires or in New York City. During the pandemic, that's one thing I've done more of and now have sort of institutionalized on a quarterly basis, this pro bono, I called it pandemic, pro bono pandemic financial literacy. And I did it once a week during the height of the of the pandemic. So, you know, I do enjoy that very much. And it gives me, it gives me joy to be able to do that with both the college and, you know, other, other issues people were facing at that time. And, and so how did it work from the, I guess, from the business end? Just like literally what were you selling? Uh, so like, People go to the seminar and then at the end of the seminar workshop, they're like, if you're interested, I can do this analysis for you. It's, you know, go here to schedule a meeting and it's X dollars and I'll, I'll give you a college plan, like that, that kind of setup. And, and, and what were you charging? It was a, th- I believe it was a thousand dollars and that included an in-person meeting. I would gather the information I think at the beginning, it was two meetings. They would come in, I would gather the information. And then I had a software program that, you know, I would input the data and do the EFC, the expected family contribution, explain it all to them, talk about the FAFSA. You know, it was it, it was a fine line because at the time, there were a lot of these groups that called themselves college financial planners and they were trying to get people to to hide assets or put it into annuities or insurance or something and that wasn't something I did it was more education it was more here's what you can here's what you can expect for it was largely you know middle class new york city parents often artistic parents cuz this is public school but it was a competitive entry public school. So we were very much all of a like mind. Nobody had a ton of money. So nobody had a ton of money. Financial aid is relevant. Highly motivated, focused, extremely engaged parents. Education is paramount. So, you know, many of them 
had, you know, there was one dad who cried in my office because he realized he couldn't fully, he couldn't pay for his daughter's education. And that was, you know, I think a lot of people, education has changed so much and it's so much more expensive and grown exponentially ahead of inflation that, you know, my, my parents paid for my education and I'm eternally grateful, but I had to take out loans for my sons and he did get some financial aid. It's a different world now. So I think it's a lot of people maybe didn't think about it until their kids are headed to high school. I mean, I had started saving when my son was born because I'm a saver. I would say we're, we're planner types. This We're planners. Before. We're planners. And, and so you're, you're doing these kind of mini plans, which I guess is, you know, meeting number one, gather info, do some number crunching, meeting number two, present, present recommendations and charge a thousand dollars. It sounds like you had just a huge volume. I mean, are, are we talking literally like had a hundred plus of these, like doing hundred plus thousand dollars of mini college plan fees in the first year or two? Yes. Wow. Just, just for, this is the right topic with the right, with the right target niche audience that really has this specific need and pain point. Exactly. Exactly. And that pain point is, you know, that's a, it's a great word, Michael, because I think that's really is it is finding that pain point where you can be of help. And that that's the point where it's both rewarding and rewarding emotionally and, and gives satisfaction and where they, you know, they, they are willing to pay. And so, so you would start with these $1,000 college plans, which worked because you had a, a highly motivated audience that had the financial wherewithal to do it in the exact sort of demographic area of people who really cared about this need and pain point that you were addressing and had a, and had a pathway to get in front of them, which is you know where you find parents who are you know at that middle class level need financial aid and are highly motivated for their children's you know, educational future. Like you find it at selective entry public schools, right? Like that's like the, that is the nexus point of where those folks will tend to show up. So, so it's not like, so it started there, but then you said for many of them, that would then take you to a full financial plan. So it's like, how did that, that process work or that pitch work? Like, Hey, you know, you get to this into the second meeting, say, Hey, I've really enjoyed working with you on this. Like, I, I love to work with you on an ongoing basis and, dig more into your whole family financial situation, see if I can help. Would that be of interest? Like just upsell it right there? I am not a good salesperson. So I, it's one of the things I'm proud of is that I've never tried to sell anyone. I have, I've never made a cold call. All of the business I've had is I put something out there, whether it's writing or, you know, a, a talk or a conversation or showing expertise or telling a story. And people then say, do you think you could help me with that? And that's, you know, maybe that's part of the, part of the secret sauce is that, you know, I know uh, when I feel like I'm being sold something, I'm, I push it away. I, you know, I, I, I sort of rebuff it. And, and so I'm very, very sensitive about that. I never, you know, to, to my own detriment, probably, but, but for the ones who it works with, that's, that's what it is. It's here's what I can do for you without 
saying, would you want me to do this for you? I guess it's a, you know, it's not, it's, there, it's a subtle difference. Well, like, I, I love the distinction uh, of like, you know, like I, I don't go out there and make, you know, I don't go out there and make calls. I go out there and show expertise or tell a story by, you know, whatever your means is, right? Give a talk, write an article, do a podcast, do a video, right? We have, we have lots of different ways we can get out there right now. Instead of saying I go out and make calls, it's I go out and demonstrate expertise and I just try to do it in a place where people have that problem and there's a decent chance that some of them will say, can you help me with that? Like, I, I have this problem and you clearly have some expertise to solve this problem. Like, how do, how do we work together? Which is just, you know, like it's so different than how our industry typically does it, right? Because we tend to start with the, start with the cold calls, not, not start with the expertise. Right. Or start with the friends and family, right? Isn't that the old way of doing things? And I purposefully... Never. <laughs> I did not start with friends and family. And, and in fact, I f- felt that when my friends started to say, could we work with you? That's when I made it. Because I had, you know, because you don't want to go to friends and family and say, I just started this business. I, you know, I've got experience, but this is new. We're new. This is, you know, I think that's doing them a disservice. And so to, you know, to truly get, and I would tell, you know, in and off, you know, not even, I realized I was doing this, not even trying, it wasn't a tactic, but I would, you know, talk to friends about issues, you know, planning issues, stuff that they were, and, and suddenly they were asking me and I didn't ever have to ask them, nor had I intended to. And so even in the context of going from college plans to comprehensive financial plans, and it, it sounds like this was less of, now that you've completed the financial planning process with us, you can move on to a full financial plan for $3,000 and I would love to work with you. And, and it sounds like instead it was more of like, hey, Maura, that was really helpful. Like, do, do, you, do you do more than just the college stuff? Because I got some other financial problems too, and you seemed really helpful. So could we do more of this stuff? Right. And it was, you know, I've gotten an inheritance since we last talked. How is that going to change things? And it, it went from there. And so, so like, how did it typically go from there? I mean, just what was, what was the broader business model? I mean, was the goal literally just doing $1,000 college plans? Was the ISDO still $1,000 college plans was an entryway to... You know, $3,000 comprehensive plans or assets under management with a X dollar minimum or something else? Like where was the idea that the $1,000 plans were the end point or the $1,000 plans were still the start point for something else that you were building towards? That was certainly the start point. And, you know, my, what I, what I found in dealing with hundreds of families at the beginning is that I like working with, you know, long-term. And so that's what, so after a year or two of doing financial plans, the co- you know the smaller college meetings, and then financial plans, and then the first year I had maybe fifteen million under management, and it was from those either volunteering at school, on the soccer field. I was just living my life. That's a big number in and of itself. Like fifteen million of AUM after the first year is a big number for. Most advisors getting getting started from scratch and starting from zero, but I, I, I guess again to me like it's, but this is what happens when you just 
get an expertise and lead with an expertise out of the gate. Like you weren't leading with cold calls. You were leading with, I'm literally getting hundreds of clients out of the gate because I just got super expertise focused on on one thing that really matters to the people that I'm trying to trying to work with. And once you're getting in front of a whole lot of people doing that and and actually delivering them value because they're literally paying you for college plans, it's just inevitable that dealing delivering value times many clients equals some of them are going to do more with you. Precisely. Which which also just strikes me you know, like you know, in, in the in the grand scheme of things, again I I know advisors out there who would happily do a hundred college plans for free for a chance at 15 million of AUM in their first year. Right. Just like, I mean, we give away all sorts of financial plans and advice for, for a chance to get clients moving. Like what, what fascinates me about the way you did it is like you got paid (laughs) to market to them. Like you made a hundred plus thousand dollars in college plans in the pathway to getting 15 million of AUM in the first year. One thing I learned less buying and selling things on Craigslist is that people don't like, don't put any value on something that's free. There's, I, I think to, to have, you know, again, it's more s- sales. If you say, come in, I'll give you something for free. And, you know, then there's this, I love what you do. You give so much wonderful information out for free. That's, that's a very different thing. But I think free to a lot of people means worthless in terms of advice. Well, and to me, just that there's, there's an effect in how you show up. It's one thing even for consumers, right? I, I think it's certainly true. You know, we, we do assign a different weight to things we pay for than, than things we don't pay for. I think the truth deep down is that like as advisors, as firm owners, as business owners, like we tend to do it as well. You know, if at the end of the day, the next plan makes you no revenue and the next investment account does, guess where you usually end up putting your resources, right? Like financial planning fees are, you know, like financial planning software is a cost to be managed. Investment management software is a cost to invest into, like is is what we build up. And, that, and to me, like that's how we end out in a world where, we say financial planning is the primary value, but I pay like $2,000 a year for my financial planning software and $15,000 a year for my investment software because the resources go where the revenue is driving. And and I don't think that's a, a fait accompli. You can do it differently, but it takes a whole other level of business focus to say, no, I am going to consciously put disproportionately high resources to a thing that is literally not driving revenue. And that's, that's, that's a hard thing as a business owner, advisor to do and to commit to, to say like, so, you know, will you commit to hiring paraplanners who make plans that generate no revenue because you're running a, an AUM only model? Are you, you know, will you invest more in a financial planning software? Do you, you know, do you spend as much time crafting your financial plan deliverable as you do the investment report deliverable? You know, I, I think we often succumb to the, the temptation or the subconscious shift as well of we put our resources, we put our resources where the revenue is and, you know, clients just see the value based on where we're putting our focus. Right. And that, you know, I, I put as much focus into the financial planning as into the investment management and educate clients that it's the marriage of those two that creates 
the life and the plan that will sustain them. And and so the one other question I do have in just this sort of early journey of you know built this expertise in in financial aid planning and then found my focus market to do it and you know put my message in front of them and sure enough lots of them showed up. Where do you get the expertise? Like how do you get to the point of saying I am a financial aid expert who's giving seminars and workshops and selling $1000 college aid plans? It's a good question. So I did you know, I did a, I've got a certificate. I did a college planning course, which had modules that walked you through every, every single bit of it, sort of the whole process. And they were very, you know, insurance focused, which, you know, I'm a fee only planner. I don't do insurance. However, you know, the material and the education was, was fantastic. And, and I had that plaque, which gave me confidence. And I think gave, gave the client's confidence as well. And, the, and I'm assuming the, the plaque was one of the things in the wheelie bag that came into the, sure the reader's was, office yes. and went up on the wall when we were going. All right. Absolutely. It, it was. Excellent. Yeah. My, my CFP, that my CFP certificate, my Georgetown diploma, my Columbia University MBA diploma, and this college planners. Right. I, you know, just went up on the wall. when we're getting started early, like we need all those credibility markers we can, we can put out there. And, and out of curiosity, do you recall just what the, what the college aid planning course was? Like, what did you actually go through that, that helped get you up to speed? I think the initials are CCCP. I'm not sure if they're around anymore. Okay, we'll uh, look it up if folks are interested and want to help track it down. This is episode 218. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 218, we'll have a link out to the designation program if it's still alive and out there and you're curious to try it out. You know, more, I am, I am so destruct though by, you know, there's one of the discussions I feel like we have still often in the industry is kind of this to you. You know, do you start out as a generalist and pick your focus point later, or is it better to start out more focused? And and I feel like the the fear I hear so often is something the effect of well, if I start out more focused, if I start pursuing some kind of specialization or niche out of the gate, like I, you know, I'm I'm going to lose all these prospects who don't fit my my focus out of the gate. And to me, like you, your story and what you what you did with this. I think kind of it illustrates how it goes when you really just do it well and go all in on it that, yeah, you know, I'm sure at some point there was some like friend or family you had who's a prospective retiree whose kids are already out of college is like, I'm so glad that Maura's doing so well, but like, she's got a college financial aid thing. Like that's, that's not what I need because I'm getting ready to retire with my million dollar portfolio and I need retirement income. And I don't know if that's her expertise. Like, I'm sure one of those slipped out. At, at some point. But when you're doing like six figures of planning fees, which is just how they're paying you to market to them so that you can also get 100, uh, you know, 15 million of AUM and all of that happens in the first year, like the business is so crushingly growing fast by being focused. Like you don't really worry about the one or two friends and family who slip through when you get paid like a hundred thousand dollars for doing planning fees from a hundred prospects who then often upsell into more bigger relationships as well. Like it's just to me, like the, the pathway you created sort of 
illustrates what that distinction is of like, are, you know, are you afraid you're going to lose one or two and fail to be so amazingly relevant to a hundred who would flock to you if you just got that crystal clear on your value and put it out there? Right. And one thing that first year taught me is that, you know, these, these kind of engagements were, they were brief and, you know, many did not have the potential to be ongoing. So, and what I found again, looking, you know, wanting to have my ideal client was again, a woman who'd been divorced, like I had been, who was making those decisions herself or widowed. Many of my clients actually are are single women who have adopted babies and raised, you know, raised these, they're now women, many of them through college. And those were really, that is when, after that first year is when I decided to hone my focus on, and I called it women, men, and their families. And, and now after that first year, it was really, it's really women who have, who are making financial decisions on their own. There are, I also have several, several of those women who happen to be married, but they're the ones who are making the decisions and and have been the savers in the relationship. So that's what I really focused in on. And that is, you know, from the very beginning, even with those doubts about, you know, what do I, you know, I still have a couple of very traditional couples. Mostly, I'd say three quarters of my business, it's single women, either divorced or widowed or, or never married with adopted adopted kids. And again, I think to me, the, the, the striking thing, even as you noted, like, yes, there were many people you did college plans for who weren't necessarily good fits to go on and, and and do more business with you, either they, they didn't have the financial wherewithal for a, a bigger AUM or otherwise relationship, or they didn't necessarily fit your, your ideal client profile as you got more focused on it. And again, like I just reflect back to, you know, I, I think the journey that a lot of us go through as advisors, like we all have a lot of situations where we end up talking with prospects who end up not being a good fit for like any number of reasons. Like the the difference is we do those meetings for free and you did those meetings for a thousand dollars, which is not, not a trivial difference in general and especially not a trivial difference when, when you're in your first few years where you're, you know, you're trying to get revenue going and dollars are more tight. Like, you know, I know a lot of advisors who take the first three years to get to a hundred thousand dollars of revenue, not having a hundred thousand dollars be like, the side hustle on their prospecting meetings on the way to 15 million of the AUM in just the first year. It certainly gave me a lot of traction. Yeah. So then talk to us more about how it changed and evolved. I'm I'm gathering that you are not still actively doing high volume seminars and a zillion thousand dollar college plans. So you know you had said even after the first year like you decided you wanted to to hone in on the focus even further, which I think is striking of itself because the specialized expertise you went to market with around financial aid and college plans to financial plans to, to AUM for, you know, families with students who are sophomores or juniors getting ready for college in public schools who are focused on education for their kids. Like that is actually already a really, really, really focused, narrow, market in and of itself. 
otherwise noted, like when you get clear on your market and you show up with expertise for them, a lot of good business happens, but you want to get even more focused from there. So help us understand how it evolved over the next few years. Like as it went from high volume thousand dollar college plans with some people that move into, into broader relationships into, into what came next, like what changed and, and how did you get to what was next? So after the exhaustion of, of those first couple of years, and I had an assistant who would knock on the door, you know, after an hour was up. And when I really sat and thought about what, who I like to work with and who I felt I did my best work for, it was people who were going through the same challenges I had faced. You know, I think it's the idea of, of, both having that technical expertise and a high level of competence. And, and I knew I could provide that. And the, and then also just the, the having that, holding the space, being able to not be so frenzied that when someone who's in pain after, you know, a widow or a divorcee, Whatever that pain point is, you know, at the beginning it was, you know, college, college planning. But then, you know, the more I worked with these people is, is that's a personal joy to me is, is giving them the calmness and the space in that, you know, in that office without somebody else coming in in an hour and, and letting them work through some of those emotions and being a non-judgmental space. And, you know, as, you know, as an advice giver, I'm, I'm the oldest of four girls. I'm, I'm an advice giver. One of the, one of the books that I found recently that is really fantastic. It's, it's, it's called the advice trap and it's about remaining curious and creating not to be the advice monster right to to be working with them to come to their own conclusions and to give this sort of space to them without too much telling them what to do because there's a lot about money obviously it's about investing wisely it's about planning but there's a lot of it that and this is the part that I found that I really enjoyed. So this is why I went away from just doing plan, you know, this mini plans, then, you know, larger financial plans. And now I don't do any of that anymore. I just work with clients who have a million dollars or more and work with them on a very deep level over time. So talk to us more about how you like just literally go from here to there, like from from financial aid, which you know has some certain implication around the amount of resources and financial wherewithal, to million dollar minimums, just what does that evolution look like? I mean, how, how do you how do you step step up and move up that ladder and 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 do so in a way that that doesn't alienate people along the way as you go from you know working with families at, at one end of the spectrum to working with families at the other end of the spectrum. You know, often those families were the same, you know, and, and New York City is that, 
kind of a place that, uh, you know, there, there can be families who are worried about planning for college, but they do have an inheritance and they didn't understand how that factored in. And, you know, a lot of families who, who, you know, they're in the arts, they're working for nonprofits, but they have a trust fund. So they, they are kind of one in the same often, often not, but those are the types who need long-term planning, need, need the investment management and, and then the hand, the handholding that is one of my favorite parts of the job. And so I, I, I guess it sounds like part of the evolution was, was simply that, you know, you're, you're, you're doing these college aid plans and getting in front of a lot of people. And then at some point, you know, transitioning some of them into comprehensive plans and, and, and AUM relationships. And there came a point where the, just the threshold of what it took to go from one to the other became a higher threshold that you had to clear. Right. In order to keep, you know, there's only so much time in a day. And I think that was, you know, I was, I was working a hundred hours a day trying to meet the needs of everyone. And that's when we had our conversation and it's, that's a tough wall to hit where I just don't have enough time for everyone. So what do you, what do you do? You can't, you, you, I certainly looked at people in terms of fit, like, are we going to be a good fit? And it's on them as, as much as me. And then, you know, raise that, raise that bar to a million under management. And, and so as you started moving that bar up, did you, did you change how things had been for existing clients? Because as you said, like you were hitting some capacity limitations, did you start rotating or shifting some folks out as others came in or just said from this point forward, we're, we're really only going to accept new clients who are at a certain, a certain threshold. Right. I certainly did not, you know, ditch a bunch of, of, of old clients who I had taken on and come, come to love. I did have to whittle and and, you know, I think there are, as I develop more of an expertise in dealing with some of the issues of women in transition, which you know, can be very specific that, that sort of more conventional couples I recommended to other people. So, so help us understand then just like, what does the firm look like today in, in terms of clients and assets and team structure, like just how, how is it situated now? So we have a, almost 157 million under management. I work with about 70 families. My, I have another advisor with the firm who has been with me since the beginning. He has about 20 families. We work and that's, separately. Sorry, just that's he has 20 of the 70 or you have 70, he has 20 and there's 90 in total. Yes. 90 in total. 90 in total. Okay. Okay. With 157 million. Okay. So, you know, just sort of straightforward math, like 157 million, about 90 families in total. It's so like average client size is almost 1.7 million. So, you know, we have a fairly, fairly affluent crowd for, for who you've been able to, to target and work with, com- commensurate with the minimums and where you put them. Exactly. And so Matt has gotten some clients 
on his own. And some of his clients have, have come to me initially. And then Matt is, is better for them. He does more work with couples. And so he specializes in, in, in more conventional couples. I tend to have the with couples, it's same, same sex couples, couples where the woman is the more of the breadwinner, win, the breadwinner and earner, saver, and the single women. And, and so is it literally just the two of you? Is there other staff and team support in place as well? Like just how do you, how do you handle 90 odd client families? So we have, we have about five people who are all virtual or part-time. We've got uh, some back office financial planning help. We've got a fantastic assistant who happens to be based in Colorado. Clients love her. She is a rock star. We have some people who are in the offices, both in, you know, who, who check in on the offices in New York and the Berkshires. We have, you know, our expertise from estate planning partners and CPA partners who we refer out and work very closely with for the clients. And so how do you look at, at just issues like volume and, and, and capacity at this point? You know, I'm, I'm cognizant that part of this discussion, you know, including how we were in touch originally was, was really around this challenge of, you know, I've, I've had all this growth and yes, growth is lovely, but like I'm, I'm kind of drowning in the volume of all this stuff. And so now more years have gone by. The, the, the business is even larger than it, than it was then. And so how are you like thinking and looking at, at capacity at this point and, and how much you can handle and manage? Well, I think I have hit capacity and I've said that the last couple of years. And so I have, whereas I was taking on an enormous amount of new clients at the time we spoke, it's been very limited and very targeted. I take maybe one or two new clients a year and there are a few in the works for this year. So that's done, done already. So that like one in two new clients per year is, is that's really just a maintenance mode in practice. I'm assuming like, you know, we, we lose one or two a year just because, you know, uh, uh, death and family circumstances and life happens and people move and, and various stuff. So you're, I'm assuming that means sort of net net you're, you're really just holding steady, at least on, on uh head count. So, so I guess I'm just wondering like, so like, why is this the capacity? Why, why here? Why not some other number threshold, even down to like, you know, could Matt take more than 20 or would you want to grow more than 20? Like how did, how did this become the line? Was it 90 families or 150 million of AUM just gives the numbers that you wanted to get to, or is it something else that dictates what, what capacity in that threshold looks like? You know, I think it's, it's time and it's what I want to be able to give to the clients. And that's, that determines whether, you know, when we do get an inquiry, you know, and I often, if it's, if it's um, a good fit for Matt, then I will refer them there or, or perhaps they're looking for, they just need a, a financial plan. And so I have a network of people who I refer out to both locally in the Berkshires and, and 
in the city. I was going to say, like, how do you deal with situations when you are at capacity or or so near capacity that, you know, you'll take one or two, but that still means the majority of, of prospects are getting turned away. Like, how do you handle those situations without, you know, making people upset, making clients who referred upset, making centers of influence who referred you upset? Like, how how are you handling those situations to keep it comfortable when you have to say, you know, thank you so much for the referral, but no. And that is the trickiest thing. And so part of that is in advance talking to those people and saying, you know, and this happened as I, as I move from planning into, you know, just, just long-term clients, making it clear to people who may recommend you that, that there is a minimum and there is a waiting list. And so, you know, I don't get the number of cold calls, for example. You know, another thing I did at the beginning is I I was part of the Garrett Planning Network. And that certainly helped get me launched as well. And also gave me the courage to be able to, and and expertise and know-how to be able to do it on my own. Because until that point, I had only seen it through the wirehouses. And, you know, I had been with UBS in equity research, but I could see the advisors when I was in business school and the big firms would have, would have these gatherings to try to court some of the newly minted MBAs. And I would come away from these things. And honestly, I felt like I needed to take a shower because that was not the kind of business I wanted to have, you know, and, and, it mattered, you know, how they talked. And, and this was also a recognition of, of where women belong in this industry. And, you know, men talking about book of business. And I remember when I was at Capital Group, Paul Haga, who was the head over there, brilliant, brilliant man. And he would tell the marketing group and people who were dealing with RAAs, and he would say, that's not a you know, his whole thing was words matter. Everything matters. And I learned so much from, from him. And he took the time to come talk and speak to us about the importance of the messages that we were giving to the RIAs. And his point was, you know, it's not a book of business. These, these are clients, they're people. And then it matters. And it matters how you talk about it to yourself, to potential employees, to, to everyone. And I've always taken that to heart as well. So, so how does the, you know, I get how minimums work, right? That's sort of pretty straightforward. You mentioned, you know, both minimums and a waiting list. So how does the waiting list work? The waiting list works is if there, if there is an event where someone, someone leaves or dies and that doesn't happen very often. So we keep the name and if that were to happen, we would reach back out to them. But how do you communicate it from, from like for the client or for the, the prospect? Like, how does this work? Mara, I'd like to work with you. You know, no, there's a waiting list. Like, okay. How's the waiting list work? I know. I got got financial (laughs) problems and I'm (laughs) trying to just figure out what the deal is here. Like, just how do you, how do you communicate a waiting list to, to prospects when you have to tell them you're, you're going to be on the waiting list? And it's, you know, I think it's probably better than just saying, 
No, because in reality, a waiting list could be, you know, it could be a year, it could be two years. And when people reach out, they're looking for something. So we, we talk about the waiting list and, and then we also give referrals. Okay. And so, and so if someone comes in and says, I want help, the, uh, the conversation be like, Hey, you know, we're, uh, our, our minimums are a million dollars and, and we're actually not looking at any additional clients right now. You know, I, I can put you on the waiting list and let you know if a spot opens up where we might be able to work together on an ongoing basis. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm also going to refer you to an, another advisor I know because I realize you may have some stuff going on right now that can't wait until my waiting list opens up. So, you know, hope this works for us in the future. But in the meantime, here's here's someone to talk to that can help. Right. Okay. And and then how do you decide who to who to send these to? So I you know I know a lot of a lot of women mostly in the in the industry but men too because I think you know you try to see who who's a good fit and I think people are comfortable with, you know there's a million different types of advisors out there and everybody does have different expertises different personalities what may work with one person like the clients who love me may hate somebody else but people who you know who aren't comfortable with my style may love the guy who talks about his book of business i don't know you know there's 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 somebody for everybody and i think that's the important thing to remember as you're thinking about this industry you know especially as a woman thinking about this industry i think this is one of the best kinds of kinds of work you can do and so many women are afraid of it you know it's the math or or just the that it's so you know the history of it is men in suits and women may not feel comfortable in the room and so i i guess i'm wondering in that context as well you 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 have you have noted a history in the financial services industry right you were at you were at UBS for a period of time. You were at Capital Group, which is American funds for many years. So, you know, before you ultimately decided to go into, I'm going to run my own financial advisory firm and, and launch on your own, I guess, eight, eight or nine years ago now. So, like, what what led you to financial advisor and and taking that leap after you know, 10 to 15 years in the industry already. Like what actually led to that crossover or that switch or that change to say like, this is the part of the industry I want to be in. So my background is journalism. I had been with local papers, with the Associated Press. I wanted to live abroad. So instead of doing that through AP, I left there and went and I lived in Prague. I worked for one of the two English language papers that had sprung up in Prague in the early 90s. And th- through that, and I think, you know, being a journalist and asking questions is is one of my biggest skill sets. It's one of, it's also one of the best jobs ever. Being in Prague, working for the Prague Post and talking to other Americans there. That was a time when that, you know, there was an influx. There still is. We started a, with a couple of other reporter types, we started a bookstore and coffee house in Prague. I married a, a wonderful Russian musician who I fell in love with there. We had a son there and came back to New York and 
you know, I knew to live the way I wanted to live in New York, we were going to have to, you know, do some things. He, he was a musician. So I had read a story about investing in brownstones with a couple of different apartments. So we got in sort of at the ground floor in the dicey part of Park Slope in Brooklyn and renovated and had tenants. And by the time the marriage broke up, you know, the, the, the building had appreciated. We sold it. I bought another place in Fort Greene, which is even dicier than that area of Park Slope at the time. And then built that up. And again, with the market appreciation, invested in another brownstone condo project with this guy who owned a real estate firm in Brooklyn, who was really my guru. I learned so much from him about life and about investing. And then it got to the point where I knew I needed more focus. So I sold those, I sold those properties moved into Manhattan with my son when he was then going in in middle school and needed to take my expertise, what I had built, but I knew I needed to make more money. So I did some freelancing when my son was younger, Fortune Magazine, which led to an offer at JP Morgan to edit equity research, which led to a job at UBS in equity research. So I read equity research every day for many years. Um, Interesting. Just, so I want to try to follow that, that leap. Like you were, you were writing about like stocks and investing at fortune and the crossover to the financial, like the, the, the private industry side was doing like, journalistic writing, editing of the equity research reports that the investment bank was putting out. Yes. Okay. It's just like, that's an interesting crossover sort of from, you know, you know, external journalism editing to internal content editing as the, as the crossover bridge, as the, as the foot in the door. As it were. And that was the foot in the door. And I think that had it not been for that, I wouldn't know what EBITDA or EPS or free cash flow balance sheets, you know, that was going from popular business journalism into like real writing and editing about companies and the stories companies have and how you look at managements and how you look at balance sheets, at which, you know, then UBS and Payne Weber had a, had a merger. My team was, was laid off eventually a couple of years later. So then I found work at Capital Group in their New York office. And, you know, I can't say enough good things about Capital Group. It's, it's an ethical, wonderful money management outfit. And there I was marketing, you know, writing and marketing to RIAs, which is how I learned about that industry. They also had me speaking to the press. So when the the press called. I I was the the contact, and it was there that I went to business school at Columbia. They have a program where it's full time while you are working full time, and I also had a son in middle school, and that taught me a lot about my perfectionism 
And with the lack of time, I could not. I was going to say that'll teach you a little bit about about perfectionism and time management. (laughs) And and trial by fire. I mean, that certainly I had to make conscious choices about where I was present. And, you know, sometimes it was my son who needed my full attention. Sometimes it was, it was the work in the office that I was doing. And sometimes it had to be those exams and classes. And that is when all of this congealed from the journalism background, the entrepreneurial bent to here's here's what I like to do, both that research. I'm, I'm wonky. And, but yet I, I'm an introvert, but I still like people in controlled settings. <laughs> and, and that's yeah, like, it's know, not that we don't like people as introverts. We just don't like a lot of them at once. At once, at once. Exactly. Exactly. And, and breaks in between. So that, you know, that it's, it, it's, it all congealed into this thing that I'm really, really good at. Well, and I, to the right people. Yeah. Well, and I love just that that story and that evolution. So, no, I mean that was that was the better part of a decade just going through all of those different steps and and starting with a foot in the door of you know I went from the journalism of of getting the information and finding the story for media publications to getting the information and finding the story for an equity research article for an investment bank. And, and having that, you know, weave a 10 year journey that, that ends in creating an advisory firm. Like, I I think it just, A, it's, I I just think it's literally a cool journey, but to me, it, it also is, I think just a really powerful sort of statement and point about how these things evolve over time that, you know, you don't necessarily have the master plan of how you're going to get there. Even if you do, it may not follow the master plan that you were expecting in the first place, because you find the things that you like to do and want to do and are and are good at. You know, it, it it started with just I got my foot in the door by going from writing stories about companies at Fortune to writing stories about companies at UBS. Right. And, and, and yada yada yada, mm-hmm. $150 million under management. <laughs> right. And realizing what you know what I, what I am good at and what I'm not good at, and accepting that. And being at peace with the wonkiness, with the awkwardness, with, you know, I, I, I'm not a great talker. I'm not a great salesperson. I'm a far better writer than talker. But, you know, and I have to say, you know, I've meditated for years. And I think that allows me to quiet that internal critic to the point where I can be present with others and then and also be sort of open and welcoming and understanding of people. So it, as you look back, what surprised you the most about building an advisory business over the over the past eight or nine years? How how much I enjoyed the work and how how much work it is and how I would never work this hard for anyone else. You know, it's me and the clients. It's, I've found out a lot of things about myself that, you know, and have grown. I think at the beginning, I was very much a micromanager. You know, I wanted everything to be so perfect for the client that I hate to admit this, but there was a time when I was having my assistant run emails to clients by me first, <laughs> just because I didn't want any, any, anything that was said to turn them off in, in a certain way. And so I've, you know, I've, I've worked through a lot of that and that's, I think I have shed most of that. What was the low point for you on the journey? Do you know, I think that was when, you know, when I reached out to you 
and just being overwhelmed by the sheer number and by the inability to help everybody. And that, you know, I hadn't really honed what, what to say. And I didn't want to hurt people by picking, picking one over another or, you know, it was a level of anxiety of, of not, of wanting to help everybody, particularly since, you know, so many people who were coming were, were that ideal client, but I just didn't have the capacity. And I did think about, Creating a bigger business. You know, I looked at what Stacey Francis has done a wonderful job in building this terrific firm that exists without, you know, even without her. It's, it's, she's phenomenal. And then making that decision kind of after talking to you that, you know, reading what you've written about here's, here's the path to, you know, solo or small advisory firm that continues forever. And here's one that turns into an ensemble and gets to a bigger place and is something that is then saleable. And I've, you know, thought about this for years. And that was the point where I, I realized I don't want to manage other people, that the true joy in this for me is working with the clients and doing my own research and putting it to, I like to do a little bit of everything. And I think that's what keeps me engaged and interested is I love doing the marketing. I, I figured out how to SEO my website at the beginning. So I didn't have to hire anyone. And there's a, like little joys in learning those things. And that's the wonky part. And those are the things I want. I, I decided I like to keep going. I don't want to hand those things off to other people and create a, a bigger firm just because the, there's clients there. So what I want to do is encourage more women to go into this because I think there, there, there's a huge world out there for, for women who want women, for men who want women advisors so they can help their, their wives when they're gone. There's a lot of different types. Uh, there are men who like, who like to deal with women advisors. There's a comfort and confidence maybe in not having to draw swords. So I'm wondering though, like the, the challenge I see for so many advisory firms that, that hit this point, like it's one thing to, to sort of talk about like the, the capacity or the, or the pain of being over capacity and, and the stress to it. And like, do I really want to manage people or do I not want to manage people? But the industry, I think in the aggregate is just so focused on growth and more, 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 right? Like we put the growthiest firms on the pedestal. You know, no, no, nobody has an award. Like nobody has a list of the advisors who do the best job of taking vacation while awesomely serving their clients. Only the award for the firms that added the bajillion new clients on top of all the ones that they had. That's what we put up on the pedestal. I think that that's how we've tended to define success in the industry. And so, you know, you had as much of a rapid growth path as almost anyone out there. I mean, I think by the time we were talking, even in 2017, like you were coming up on 80 to a hundred million dollars after five years of starting from scratch, which is just a, a monster number for anyone starting from scratches. I mean, anyone at all, but anyone starting from scratch as a solo in five years. So you, know, you, I feel like you, you perhaps lived that growth train more so even than most advisors. And so what happened or what changed or how did you get comfortable to go from that level of growth to being able to say like, mm, yeah, maybe we'll take one or two clients this year? 
really thinking hard about what I want my life to be. When I started the business, I was, you know, as I mentioned, di- divorced single mom raising raising her son in New York. So my life was the business and being a being a soccer mom. And when we spoke, I had opened a second office in the Berkshires. I had met the man who is now my husband, who is a PhD in philosophy and owns his own small business. So he had that in common, a design build firm, very different than philosophy, although that's, we talk a lot about that. You know, and some of these things, just that it's, what is what is happiness? And, you know, I work a lot with that with my clients and, you know, the intersection of, of money and happiness and success and what what is that? And, you know, looking at, you know, a story that I heard when I was in business school about the Mexican fisherman. Do you know the story of the Mexican fisherman? No. What is the story oh, of the Mexican fisherman? Great. So the investment banker goes down to Mexico and he is, you know, he's on a well-deserved vacation. He sees this fisherman who's really good every day. And he goes out and he gets the best, you know, looks like the best yellowtail fish. And he's, he's in and out. He's a really good fisherman. So the investment banker says, hey, so looks like you're one of the best fishermen here. And he said, thank you. Thank you. He said, so, but you're in and out. You don't, you don't fish all day. And he said, no, I can, you know, I do this. I get enough for the family, a little bit extra. And uh, investment banker says, what do you do the rest of the day? He said, you know, I take a siesta with my wife. I hang around with my kids. I take a stroll in the evening after dinner and play guitar with my friends. And the investment banker says, so, you know, man, you could, you could, if you fished all day, then you could make enough money to buy another boat. And then you could have a fleet. You could have people working for you. Then you could come in, you could sell your fish. You could cut out the middleman and you could make your own cannery. And then you could, you know, create this business and then you IPO it. And then, and then you'd be, you'd be a wealthy man. And the fisherman says, wow. So how long will this take? He says, you know, 20 or 25 years. And he said, so then what would I do after I, after I sold this big business? He said, well, then you could, you know, take a siesta with your wife, play with your kids, take a stroll in a, in a Mexican fishing village and hang out with your friends. And I just thought, you know, here I was in business school where they talked about, you know, these private equity classes where they talked with derision about the word lifestyle firm, right? That this is, you know, and so I had that mindset and hearing this story and it brought me back to thinking about Voltaire's Candide where, you know, Candide after years of trying to, you know, get somewhere and there's travails and trauma and and he finally meets this man who's truly content and he's got you know he's got his his farm he's he's generous he's he's got a he's got a modicum of wealth and a happy family and 
that's where famously, you know, he says, I, I, we need to cultivate our own gardens. And John Bogle's book Enough is also something that influenced this decision. And, you know, when is enough? And this is, you know, getting back to this real estate guru I had, I remember him talking about this and what is enough? When, when is it enough? And particularly businesses like that and businesses like ours, where we could just keep growing and keep working that, you know, are you the whole idea of what is, what is success and what is happiness? And, you know, it's not a number. It's not getting to a certain point. And I think, you know, part of what Bogle talks about, you know, he was one who founded Vanguard and, and famously, you know, talked about enough and, and he really worked for the clients. His idea of, of enough, and I guess this is, you know, there's, there's no point where I could stop and not, not work or there's, there's, there's no point where I would stop and coast. It's, I need to be constantly challenged. And I think doing that with, you know, digging into the tax laws and the estate planning laws and how that impacts families and, and more and more about the psychology of, of money and being able to help those clients and the joy of having that long-term relationship with clients. You know, someone was writing to me last week and saying something and then they ended it saying, thank you so much, my dear friend. And that was just like, my heart exploded. It's, you know, it's a, it's a client, but this is, that's how they see me. And that's how I, I want to be able to have the time and maintain those kinds of relationships. Well, and I, I love the way that you frame that, that, you know, yes, you like, you've reached that, reached that point where, you know, it, it's built to be a, a lifestyle practice. You're at the size that is enough so, you know, we're in maintenance mode on number of new clients and such, but, but that doesn't mean you're in coasting mode or that you don't need to be constantly challenged, just that you are finding the challenges in different ways, which is not, you know, how do I add the next one, two, three, five, 10, 20, 50 clients in the next hundred million dollars and grow to the next level and, and all of that. It's, you know, how do I get even deeper on this new client challenge? Like, how do I research this new thing? How do I figure out? something new, like you're challenging yourself within the practice and the work that you're doing for clients, as opposed to trying to run the particular challenge of how do I grow it more? Cause that, that creates challenges you didn't necessarily want. Like how do you manage more people and hire and train to develop them and, and things that weren't necessarily the passion for you. Right. And I, you know, and I listen to people who've done it and done it well on your podcasts and, and other places. And, you know, I have to say that spark is like, oh, Maybe I should have done that. Maybe I could still do that. And then I go back to, you know, some of these bigger issues. Like, I don't know if you know Dan Harris, who famously fell apart on, you know, very publicly on, on TV and found on his healing journey meditation. And he does the 10% Happier book and he does a podcast. And his his meditation guru is Jeff Warren, who's fantastic. And one of his big things is comparison is the thief of joy. And when I find myself going to that point of comparing my business, my firm, my clients, what I'm doing with anybody else, 
that's when I put the salt shaker back to the middle of the table. And I say, this is, you know, I don't need to be there. I don't need to go there. So, so what advice would you give for you know, younger and newer advisors getting started today to, to build an advisory firm? I would say study as much as you can the technical details to bring that as table stakes, I think, you know, to really be, be diligent about the technical aspects. And then on top of that, not be afraid to figure out who, who you resonate with and make that your specialty. It saves, it saves a lot of time because if it's not, you know, you don't have to learn about stock options if that's not your people. You know, it allows you just a greater focus. And I know that many, many people have a fear of creating that focus. But when you've got it, it's, you know, it, it benefits your business in so many different ways. And I guess the third thing really is, is persistence. And I think that beyond anything else, beyond, you know, genius or talent or, you know, it's, it's grit and, and staying with it even after, you know, you hit lows and, and fears and comparisons that you keep, you just keep going, you pick yourself up and keep going. So as we wrap up, uh, you know, this is a podcast around success and, and one of the themes that always comes up and I, I think very much throughout this discussion is, is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, you build, I think what anybody would objectively call a, a very successful practice at, you know, $150 million after, after eight years and, and uh, all the opportunity that affords. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Success for me is freedom from boredom freedom from need or want and autonomy. I think those are those are things that had been missing perhaps in in past jobs. I don't like committees, I don't like meetings. You know the the autonomous nature of of having a small firm suits me. So I feel like that is success success not to have tried to fit a square peg in a round hole. And the continuous challenge of, of changing regulations and laws cre- combined with the you know c- continuous quest for knowledge in terms of hu- the human condition and, and how we create our lives and how money is a tool to help us create those lives and how I can help clients. I think that's a success. I think the clients have helped so far and may help in the future, that that's a success. I think at any point along my life, I might have said, I'm a success right now. But I think it's, it's, you know, I, I do feel like there's a lot to learn. And, but I'm, I'm there. I, I love it. And, and, and really the, to me, just that, that dichotomy of there, there is such thing as, as, saying you have enough in your practice, but that doesn't mean you have enough in, in life and that you can't still keep challenged and keep fresh and keep engaged and, 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 and have things to do and work on and feel like you can achieve and accomplish. Just 
you don't have to make bigger practice the mountain that you're always trying to climb higher on. There, there are other mountains to climb. Exactly. We tend our own gardens. And every year there's different challenges, different, different flowers, different crops. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Maura, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael, and for everything you do for all of us, for the industry. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.